You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I hand it on to you as first importance what I in turn have received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. This morning, Jessica and I were still laying in bed, and <clears throat> Henry and Owen got up before we did, which is a pretty frequent occurrence, actually. And they wandered into our room, and they crawled up on our bed, and we were still laying there trying to get maybe a few more seconds of sleep. And they started talking, and Henry and Owen started talking about death. And they started saying, we're going to die one day. And mommy and daddy are going to die one day. And if mommy and daddy die, we get to go live with grandma and papa. <laughs> and there was a little bit of joy in his voice when he said that. <laughs> we wonder about what happens to those that we love when they die. That is the context for the chapter that we are going to be exploring for the next six weeks. We are going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and specifically how that resurrection continues to impact our everyday lives and our faith. And instead of relegating the resurrection to an isolated historical moment, how do we allow our faith to be guided by it each and every day. That is what we are going to explore together. Flannery O'Connor was a short story writer whose stories were often odd and dark, but dealt with themes of religion and faith. 
One of her more darker stories is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And in the story, there is a character called the misfit. And he is not a good person. In fact, he spends the entire story planning and directing the murder of six members of one family. And at one point, amid all of the murder and the mayhem and the bloodshed, the misfit makes this comment. Jesus was the only one that ever raised from the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. Because when he did, he thrown everything off balance. The misfit seems to know what the resurrection really does. It throws everything off balance. Because resurrection messes with our ideas of how the world is supposed to work. Up is down, down is up, and our little semblance of predictability is gone. Resurrection throws everything off balance. Well, we're going to explore this idea. And oftentimes, we can be guilty of keeping Jesus' resurrection as relegated to just Easter morning. But it is the very heart of our faith, friends, and it's something that we should explore and examine much more often and much more closely. So we're going to look at the resurrection during the season of Easter. For Baptists, we tend to think of Easter as just one day where we get to put on fancy clothes and eat our weight in chocolate. But Easter is not just a day. On the church calendar, Easter is a season. So this year, we are practicing the season of Easter, and we're exploring the resurrection as we do so. And our guide during this season is the Apostle Paul. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at just chapter 15 of the letter of 1 Corinthians. This chapter is actually the earliest and most extended writing on Jesus' resurrection in the entire Bible. Some people do not realize that Paul's letters were actually written before the Gospels. And scholars believe that 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's earliest letters. So right here we have the closest we can get to leaning in and hearing what does the early church believe about Jesus's resurrection. Now before we jump into chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, let me tell you a little bit about the church in Corinth. I know none of you have, but if you've ever at one point in your life been part of a church with a lot of dysfunction uh, and you want to feel better about yourself, just crack open 1 Corinthians and give it a read. They were a messed up place. Here's just a few of the issues that are going on in the church in Corinth. There was generational tension. They were being sexually immoral with one another. They were suing one another. Their marriages were falling apart. They weren't taking care of the poor in the community. The rich people were eating all of the Lord's Supper before the poor people could even get off work in time to get there. 
They were fighting about who had the most important spiritual gifts. They had forgotten how to love one another. One of my pet peeves in ministry is, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to make some people mad, but whenever people have 1 Corinthians 13 read at their wedding, it is not about romance. It is about community. The love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13 is not sticky, sweet sentimentality. It is about the hard work that it takes to be a community of faith together. So, sorry if you had that read at your wedding. Suffice it to say, the church in Corinth is a messed up place. But... Despite all of these concerns, despite all of these issues, none of that is what most upsets Paul. What most upsets Paul is the subject that he spends the most time talking about. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evidently, there were members of the Corinthian church who thought the idea of Jesus' resurrection from the dead was kind of silly. And especially they thought it was silly that that meant that other people would be resurrected. Instead, they were denying that Jesus' bodily resurrection was really all that important. And that's because they believed in a philosophical school of thought known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the hidden villain of the New Testament. It was a, a way of viewing the world that was rampant in the ancient world and almost all of the New Testament writers are trying to combat it in the early churches. The word Gnostic means knowledge and it referred to a school of thought in the ancient world that believed that all physical matter is evil. And instead, what we should strive for is nothing physical. Instead, we should strive for the spiritual, the non-material, because that's what is truly holy. They went so far as to teach that the Gnostics believed that Jesus never actually was a real human being because they could not stand the idea that he had a body. Instead, they called Jesus a spiritual being. The word they used was aeon. So evidently, what the Corinthian Christians were believing is that there was a resurrection, but it had nothing to do with bodies. Instead, it was, a, it was an inward or a spiritual resurrection. These Corinthians were kind of pompous and arrogant, they thought they were smarter than Christian theology. They believed in a higher gnosis, a higher knowledge. They were sophisticated, and they would never believe something as silly as a bodily resurrection for Jesus or for you and I. Because for them, salvation was about escaping from this brutish, physical world. Gnosticism is not something that's just relegated to the ancient world, though. We still have forms of Gnosticism today. 
Some people hold to a form of Gnosticism that we might call moralism, in which they reduce Jesus to simply being a really great moral teacher. They don't see him as the crucified and resurrected Savior. Instead, they just see him as an example of an enlightened human being. People who fall into moralism tend to believe that the the goal of Christian life is to become your very best self. And it's all about self-fulfillment. You can go to Barnes & Noble and go to the Christian living section and find all kinds of books with this kind of way of thinking. This is a, a form of Gnosticism because it disembodies Jesus from the reality of his life and his death and his resurrection. It turns him into a guru instead of recognizing him as a savior. That's one form of Gnosticism. Other people hold to a form of Gnosticism we might call escapism. This is the belief that none of this world really matters. This world doesn't matter. Our bodies don't matter. This earth doesn't matter. Because one day we'll be raptured from this earth. Because none of this really matters. It's a form of of Gnosticism because it's all about the spiritual. And it treats the physical as being fallen and evil. One of my favorite novels is the novel Jaber Crow by the writer Wendell Berry. Jaber is the barber in a small fictional town called Port William, Kentucky. And Jaber is very clear that he doesn't actually go to church there because he can't stand what he often hears in the churches. And in this section I'm going to read to you, he's explaining why he doesn't go to church. In Port William, More than any place I'd been, this religion that scorned the beauty and goodness of this world was a puzzle to me. To begin with, I didn't think anybody believed it, and I still don't think so. Those world-condemning sermons were preached to people who on Sunday mornings would be wearing their prettiest clothes. Even the old widows in their dark dresses would be pleasing to look at. By dressing up on the day when when most of them had leisure to do it, they signified their wish to present themselves to one another and to heaven looking their best. The people who heard those world-condemning sermons loved good crops, good gardens, good livestock, and work animals and dogs. They loved flowers and the, the shade of trees and laughter and music. And some of them could make you a fair speech on the pleasure of a good drink of water or a patch of raspberries. While the wickedness of the flesh was being preached from the pulpit, the young husbands and wives and the courting couples sat thigh to thigh, full of yearning and joy. The old people thought of the beauty of the children. And when church was over, they would go home to heavenly dinners of fried chicken, it might be, and cream new potatoes, and cream new peas, and hot biscuits, and butter, and cherry pie, and sweet milk, and buttermilk. And the preacher and his family would always be invited to eat with somebody, and they would always go. And the preacher, 
having just forsworn on behalf of everybody the joys of the flesh, would eat with unconsecrated relish. I declare, Miss Pauline, said Brother Preston, who was having Sunday dinner with the Gibbses, those certainly are good biscuits. I can't remember how many I've eaten. Preacher, said Uncle Stanley, that makes eight. Gnosticism is whenever we see faith as just ethereal and spiritual. What Paul wants the Corinthians and, and you and I to know is that our faith is to be grounded and earthy and embodied. Paul wants to correct the Corinthian church's idea that their faith is meant to be disembodied. And in fact, Paul is arguing that a lot of the issues that they're struggling with that we read about earlier in 1 Corinthians, issues around sexuality and ritual and marriage and poverty, they're all directly related to the fact that the Corinthians do not believe that God is actually interested in our bodies. The moral failings of the Corinthians were symptoms that they misunderstood something far more important, that the bodily death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ matters today. So as Paul begins this chapter, as Paul begins, he starts his argument with the Corinthians by appealing to the core of the gospel message that he knows that they've heard. He says this in verses 3 and 4. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul wants to begin by, by grounding his teaching on the resurrection in the gospel first and foremost. And he tells us what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised. In our hymnal is the beautiful anthem called, This is the Threefold Truth. And it says, This is the threefold truth on which our faith depends, and with its royal cry, worship begins and ends. Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Paul wants the Corinthians to cling to. And in fact, in this section we just read from Corinthians, Paul is likely quoting an ancient creed, a statement of belief that summed up what the early church believed. Paul wants to remind them that their faith is based in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and when Paul says in this verse, Paul says, he was raised, when he talks about Jesus, he's using in the Greek the perfect passive verb form. Don't let your eyes glaze over too much. That matters. 
Because what that means when he uses his verb form is that Paul is not saying Jesus was resurrected in the past, but the perfect passive form means that Paul is saying Jesus was raised and Jesus remains raised. Paul is not isolating the resurrection to one historical moment. He is saying that Christ is the risen Lord today. Paul wants these Corinthians to know that the resurrection is not just one moment in history. It is the moment that changed history. And then Paul moves on to argue that there are witnesses to this. He goes through a list. Paul lists that Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is another word for Peter, the 12 disciples, a crowd of 500 people, and even James, the brother of Jesus. And then Paul moves to himself. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You all know this story. Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians when Jesus saw fit to knock him off his high horse and change his life. Why does he tell us this? Why would Paul begin his argument on the resurrection by telling us about eyewitnesses? I think here's why. Because Paul is wanting the Corinthians to know that the experience of the resurrection is rooted in stories. It is rooted in testimony. See, Paul is not here trying to prove the resurrection. There's no way to prove the resurrection. You can't prove something that goes beyond the rules of science. It is rooted not in an argument. It is rooted in our experience, in our story of the risen Christ. I think we can sometimes forget that. My favorite story in the entire Bible is the uh, story of the man who was born blind in the Gospel of John chapter 9. If you don't remember the story, Jesus encounters this man, Jesus spits in some mud, and then he takes that mud and he puts it on the man's eyes and he tells him to go wash. And then a really interesting thing happens because most of the time in the Gospels for miracle stories, our camera stays with Jesus. But in this one, the camera stays with the blind man. He goes and washes his eyes and he goes to the temple and says, I can see now. And the temple leadership doesn't believe him. And they question him. And they interrogate him. And they want to know how. How did this happen? How is it that you were healed? My favorite verse in the story. Verse 25. He answered, I do not know how. One thing I do know. 
Though I was blind, now I see. The blind man enters the temple leaders, not with an apologetic argument, not by proof texting some scriptures, not with some clever case. He simply lays bare in front of them the power of his own story. I once was blind, and now I see. There's your proof. That's what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians. Before he begins to talk in more detail about the resurrection, he declares to them, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. What's your story? What is your story with the risen Christ? Listen, there's nothing wrong with, with reading books on theology. There's nothing wrong with going to a bunch of Bible studies. There's nothing wrong with studying apologetics and arguments. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But if you are not able to tell people the story of your experience with the risen Christ, do you actually have any good news to share with anybody? So again, I ask, what is your story because just like the apostle paul our experience of the resurrection is rooted in story in first corinthians 15 it is about how the resurrection affects all that we do and all that we are if we are disciples of jesus christ in his little commentary on 1 Corinthians, I love what the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about this. Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all those things. But at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world, an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe and who live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. If we, if we take the resurrection seriously, if we allow it to get out of just Easter morning and, and get into our very lives, we will never be the same again. Our story will never be the same again. So again, I ask you, what is your story? Jessica and I have been blessed uh, over the past few years to be part of different community groups here at First Baptist. And I've talked about this in sermons before. I'm going to talk about it in sermons again. Community groups are something that are very important to me. The community groups that we have here at First Baptist often start by going through a curriculum called spiritual autobiography. Our youth are currently doing that right now. And what spiritual autobiography is, is you begin with five or six weeks of just sort of an old-fashioned Bible study. 
And then eventually you go person by person, week by week, and each person takes a week and tells their story. Tells where they've come from. Tells what they've gone through. Tells how they have seen God move and act and shape their lives. And let me tell you, there is nothing that quite preaches like a story. What is your story? What is your story rooted in? Because Paul roots his own story. Paul roots the story of the early church in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is your story rooted in? Is it rooted in destruction and death? Or is it rooted in new life? Is it rooted in resurrection? Because friends, this entire series that we're about to go through is called Practice Resurrection. It comes from the final line of a poem by Wendell Berry. But I love that phrase, practice resurrection. Because he doesn't say, study the resurrection. He doesn't say, know a lot of facts about the resurrection. He doesn't say, prove the resurrection. He says, practice the resurrection. So what we're going to explore for the next few weeks is how do we be resurrection people in the here and the now? That is our story. Let's pray. God, we ask as we explore this chapter from 1 Corinthians that you would make us ever-present of the resurrection in our lives. That you would give us eyes to see, hearts to feel, minds to know how you are calling us to be resurrection people, to practice resurrection in our community. God, as we seek to define who we are in this world, as we seek to tell other people our story, Help us to root our stories in the gospel. The gospel that tells us Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In the name of both the crucified and the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.